Welcome to the Lanier Hills Church Sermon Podcast, where faith meets life. I'm Pastor Randall Popham, inviting you to explore wisdom from the Word with us. For more information, visit us online at lanierhills.com. Hello. Good morning. How is everybody? Oh, I need to start my timer. You're the lunch crowd. Mm-hmm. Baptist and lunch. Don't mess with it, right? Do not mess with it. Obviously, I am not Pastor Randall. I am Dan. I'm the student pastor here at Lanier Hills. Very excited to be with you all this morning. I uh, want to go ahead and let you know we're going to be in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, continuing in this series titled Come and See. We're going to be looking at verses 25 to 52. If you're doing math, I had to count them on my hands. That's 27 verses. Dan, what? Yeah, blame Randall. He gave it to me. All right. Just kidding. Thought that would be funnier. All right. Ha, thank you. There it is. So John chapter 7, verses 25 through 52. I think what you're going to discover Here's what I think is going to happen. I think you're going to find this to be a sad section of Scripture. So not only did Randall give me, like, you know, a lot of passages to cover, it's a, it's a rather sad little section. I think that's what you're going to find. All right? And the context that you're going to need for today is actually pretty simple. Jesus has gone through and traveled and he's been teaching and he's doing miracles. And what that has caused is a lot of different opinions on who he is, why he's here and and his true identity, who he actually is. And it's caused a lot of tension between the religious leaders, notice the, the air quotes, the religious leaders of this time and the people. So with that being said, you've got three main characters that we've got in this little passage here. The first being Jesus, obviously, the most important character. Then you've got the religious leaders who are broken down into into two parts, uh, Pharisees and basically the chief priests or Sadducees. And then you've got the crowd. So Jesus, the religious people, and the crowd. Now, before we get into this, what I want to do is I want to pray and I want to ask God to speak to us. So pray with me. Father, thank you for this time to come together and and, and open your word. God, as I sat down earlier this week to prepare this, I asked you, what is it that you want to say? What do you want to do with this passage? Tell me whatever it is, God, that you want to say, and I'll I'll say it. Whatever it is that you want to teach, God, I'll, I'll do it. So God, make me a clear vessel, give me clean hands and a pure heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So because there's so many verses, we we really, really need to get going here. All right, and what you're gonna notice as well is that I've done my best to break this down into four little sections, and at the end of each section, I'll give you a point off of that section because I am Baptist. Verse 25, some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, again, remember the tension, Tension between the religious leaders and the crowd. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, isn't this the man that they are trying to kill, they being the religious leaders? 
But here he is speaking in public and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe that he is the Messiah? I want you to understand this. The crowd is confused. The crowd is confused on who Jesus is, what what the religious leaders believe. There is confusion. And despite the threat that the religious leaders have, have basically issued to Jesus, Jesus is over here basically telling them, showing them who he is. He says in the text just before this, these are his words. It's not on the screen. I just want you to hear it. He says, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. He's basically told them, laid it out right there for them. He's all but said, I am the Messiah, all right? This immediately, when I'm reading this and preparing this, I go, okay, I see an issue from the, from the very get, right? And it's an issue that we actually have still today. The issue for these guys is the crowd has way too much trust in the religious leaders, way too much trust in the Pharisees. They're basically just going off and banking on whatever the religious leaders of the Pharisees say or do, right? Well, if the Pharisees say it, it must be true. Or if the Pharisees are doing it, it must be right. This is the idea that I get from these guys. This is an issue we have today. Scroll on Instagram or any kind of social media platform and and find any like TV preacher that's just way out in left field, right? And and look at the comments. We buy into this if we we eat it up. And just simply because a man of God said it or a pastor or a preacher said it. I would love for you to everything, everything that I take and say today, take it home, analyze it, and, and make sure that I'm on. Don't, don't, don't just believe it because I'm saying it, because I have, you know, uh, seminary credentials, okay? Don't do that. So they got way too much trust in the religious leaders. Let's keep going, 27. But how could he be? Hear the confusion. For we know this, or we, for we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear, Beam him up, Scotty, right? No one will know where he comes from. What? He is simply going to appear. No one's going to know where he comes from. I see another issue. Scriptural ignorance. You and I know it today as biblical ignorance. They don't know what the text actually says. They're just relying flippantly on religious leaders. And one of the greatest injuries we have as a nation, as a culture, as a society, we just simply don't know what the book says. These guys don't know it either. Some of the crowd thought that since they could trace Jesus' origin, that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah because the Messiah is just going to appear. What? That just, that just doesn't make any sense. That, that, and they, they couldn't be more wrong. Their ignorance of not knowing has misled them. The Old Testament talks about the Messiah, and it talks about the Messiah coming from the house of David. And all of them knew where David was from, Bethlehem. They all knew this. 
But then there's more. I started turning pages, and I wanted to know, like, how many, like, prophecies out there do we actually have on where the Messiah is going to come from in the Old Testament? And I've come across one that I, that I don't think that I've, uh, that I've actually come across before. Uh, it comes out of Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 on the screen. It says, but, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. I don't know how to pronounce that. We'll just go with Bethlehem, all right? But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. This is God talking. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. A ruler of Israel, O Bethlehem, will come from you. The Messiah is just going to appear out of nowhere. Nobody's going to know. It's not what it says. And just for kicks and giggles, check this part in verse 3. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Not just going to appear out of nowhere. It's going to come from Bethlehem. and You'll be a leader and he'll be born of a woman. Now, you could be saying, well, Dan, this, Beth, this Bethlehem Ephrathah word, whatever that is, Dan, is this the same place that Jesus was born? I had to look into this. So there are two locations known as Bethlehem at the time of Micah's writing of this text. The addition of Ephrathah is significant, all right? It specifies the Bethlehem that is in Judah, the portion of Israel Uh, in which the capital, Jerusalem, was located. Bethlehem was considered little or insignificant amongst the uh, cities of Judah. So my my point in all of that is is this. They're making claims about the Messiah, and they're just wrong. They're wrong. He's just going to appear out of nowhere. That's not what it says. (laughs) And they're paying a price for it. Their ignorance has misled them. The the Messiah is standing right in front of them. The Son of God is right in front of them. They're sharing the same oxygen, but they can't recognize it because they're so scripturally ignorant. Which got me thinking, how often do we miss out on what God is trying to say to us, trying to speak to us, what God is trying to do with us, puzzle pieces that God is trying to move with us or, or within us, and we fight it because we don't recognize that it's God because we're just simply unfamiliar with what the Word says. His Word is more than just a collection of stories. It's more than just, a, a, there's this, this weird perception of Scripture that it's, oh, it's a bunch of fantasies. It's a bunch of, like, weird Disney movies. Like, what? No, it, it tells us who he is. It tells us his character. It, it shows us his history and, and the, the manner in which he has acted or responded or things that he has done. It, it shows us who he is, and it gives us things like prophecies, uh, specifically on the Messiah, right? Here's my point in this. Let's, let's, let's have this first point here for taking notes. The more familiar we become with his word, the more familiar we'll become with him. You want to know God? This is the avenue. You want to know what he's like? This is the path. You want to know his, his ways? This is how. And again, the ignorance, the simply not knowing of Scripture is way too 
costly. You, you, you've probably heard the statement before, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, try that when a cop pulls you over. Well, I didn't know. You didn't know what? what the, I didn't know there was a speed limit. You didn't know there was a speed limit. Doesn't work, right? It does not work. Uh, several years ago, maybe my first year here at Lanier Hills, I told you a story uh, about the time that I jumped off the same cliff from the movie, the live action Jungle Book movie. I don't know if you remember this. It's, 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 an, it's about an 80 to 90 foot drop. It's dumb. So dumb. So dumb. Anyway, so long story short, this is, this is how far the drop is, okay? I remember jumping off the cliff and like looking out amongst the trees and thinking, I'm still falling. And because of that, like my body ended up kind of loosening up, you know, I started thinking to it, it ended up sitting on the water. My, 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 my cheeks were Clemson purple. It was, it was a bad day. All right. Before I jumped, I remember standing on the ledge. And my, my, my greatest fear was not the fall. That was not my greatest fear. My greatest fear was what's underneath the water. Am I going to catch so much momentum when I hit the water that my body's going to shoot down and maybe my foot's going to get caught in some kind of debris or something? I'm not going to be able to like get back up and then I'm going to die, you know, something like that. Or, you know, uh, or is it, is, is it not as deep that I, as I think it is? And maybe there's rocks and I mean, it could have been very costly. My ignorance in that situation could have been very costly. Lucky for me that day, my ignorance was not costly. Well, you get the point, right? Could have been a whole lot worse. I also started thinking about when I was in middle school. I didn't make the middle school basketball team. Shocking, I know, right? So I played rec league basketball, which was like a big deal. It's, it's almost, rec league middle school basketball is almost as important as church softball. People get mad and angry, right? We were praying, praying, we were playing our rivals. Rivals? Rec League? Yeah, we had rivals. Don't judge me. I ended up rolling my ankle a little bit, coming down, grabbing a rebound, rolled my ankle a little bit, and I had to go out of the, of the building for a short time to get it checked out, whatnot. I get cleared. She sends me back in, and coach puts me right back in, and we were in a free throw situation. If you don't know what a free throw situation is, Gameplay has basically stopped. You have one shooter at a line. They've got two shots, okay? After the first shot, all right, the ball is dead no matter what happens. Whether he makes it or he misses it, the ball is dead. He's going to shoot a second shot. Nobody's going to move, all right? Well, I came in on the second shot. I thought I was coming in on the first shot. So I'm underneath, underneath the rim, Ball is shot, bounces right towards me, and in my ignorance, I take the ball and I tap it towards the referee who is out of bounds. We were down. We needed possession. That turns the ball over to the other team. We lose. And I'm looking at the ref going, I didn't know. And he goes, that doesn't matter. But I didn't know, as if sixth grade Dan could convince him, right? I didn't know. That doesn't matter. Ignorance is not bliss, right? One of the greatest crutches we have as the American church is biblical ignorance. We just don't know what it says, right? And it's, it's, it's such a profound concept because he's laid it all out, who he is for us, right? 
All right, here we go. Let's keep going. Verse 28. It says, while Jesus was still, or while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, yes, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I'm not here on my own. He's laying it out again. The one who sent me is true, and you don't know him. It's a bad day when the Son of God looks at you and says these words. But I know him because I come from him, and he sent me to you. Again, all but saying he's the Messiah. Verse 30. Then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. When you read those words, his time had not yet come, it's, what it means is it simply was not time for him to be crucified. It was not time for him to be arrested. It was not time for him to die. The sovereignty of God is bigger than that situation, so he doesn't allow it to happen. Verse 31, look at this. Confusion leads to division. Check this out. 31, many among the crowds at the temple believed him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do more miraculous signs than this man has done? Again, it's his miracles and his teachings that's caused confusion and division. But they just have no idea. They have no idea on who the Messiah could be. And they have no idea who Jesus is. He is standing right in front of them as Son of God, as Messiah, and they don't know. And as a result, you have a part of the crowd that's like, well, well, dang, no way that this guy be, can be the Messiah because, I mean, this guy over here is, is doing miracles and, you know, so, well, maybe. Let's have a meeting. They don't know. Verse 32. When the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little longer. <laughs> what? Then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me. Again, words you don't want to hear from the Son of God, and you cannot go where I am going. The Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement. <laughs> Where is he planning to go? Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews in the other lands? Maybe he'll teach the Greeks. You hear the sarcasm, the arrogance, the confusion? What does he mean when he says, you'll search for me, but you won't find me? Is he playing, where's Waldo? What's he doing? You cannot go where I'm going. Who does he think he is? So Jesus announces his return to the Father, right? I will return to the one who sent me. But this leaves the like important religious people confused. They don't get it. And what's funny about this is the Pharisees and the chief priests, even though they're working together here, they don't have great relationships with one another. They actually really don't like each other. They're only united in the fact in their hatred for Jesus. That's the only reason they're, they're, they're kind of even working together. The, the, the Sadducees or the chief priests were a little more political and they were enemies of the Pharisees, but they're unified in their hatred for Jesus. It's kind of like, yeah, I'm going to say it. It's kind of like when Tennessee fans and Alabama fans unite together on their hatred for Georgia. You all fell for that. Tennessee doesn't like either one of you. They're united in hatred. This is the only thing that's binding them together. 
And the crowd was not able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah because of their ignorance of what Scripture said. The religious leaders had Scripture memorized. There was no chapters and verses at this time of the Old Testament, and they could just spit the whole thing to you. But they are so blinded by their hatred in their heart that they can't see it either. Jesus is standing before them as Messiah, as Son of God, but they can't, can't see it because they hate him so much. They hate him because he is turning their world upside down. He's, he's introducing new ways that are interfering with their traditions and their, and, and the, and their customs and the things that, that they do. And they, and they can't figure it out. And they have totally misunderstood Scripture, and that has caused them to miss out on him. It's got me thinking, how often do we miss out on what God is trying to say to us? what God is trying to do with us, puzzle pieces that he is trying to move with us or within us, and we fight it and we, because we don't recognize that it's God because we're simply too upset with the situation or circumstance. God, I don't know that I really care what it is that you're trying to do because they hurt me so bad. God, do you not see this situation that I'm in? I, I, I'm not sure I real care what it is that what, what, what you're trying to say. Look at this. We we can't see what God is doing or see Him because we're so caught up in the emotion of of whether it be the circumstance or or whatever. So let's word it this way: the more familiar we become with His Word, the more familiar we'll become with His ways. The more familiar we become with his word, the more familiar we'll become with his ways. It sounds contradictory. I know. I know it does. Because the Pharisees had scripture memorized. But they couldn't recognize the son of God right in front of them. Their issue wasn't that they had been through scripture. Hear me when I say this. Their issue was not that they had been through scripture. Their issue is that they refused to let scripture go through them. There's a story that my seminary president told. He was teaching our class one night for, for whatever reason. And he was talking about uh, a guy who had come through the school and, and graduated. And he had run into him like some kind of restaurant or, or Walmart or something. And the guy immediately explodes and gets mad. You, you're that guy. You're the president. Your school promised me a job as a pastor. Your school promised me this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, my school didn't promise you none of that. My school promised to educate you on scripture. We didn't promise you a job. The guy was so clouded by anger and hatred that he couldn't see the big picture, right? Looking at him saying, man, I don't think you get it. It's not what seminary does. It's not what Bible school does. Here we go. Keep going. 37. On the last day the climax of the festival. I'm going to need my students to help me here. What's the most important thing when we read scripture? Context. Context is the most important thing when we read scripture, okay? It says, the last day, the climax of the festival. 
So this festival that it's referring to is known as the Festival of Shelters. They had a uh, water ceremony that took place every day during this festival. And what they would do is they would pray for God to send rain during the late autumn, basically for their crops, all right? The last day was known as the, the great day. And it was the climax of the festival. And it was when the, the water ceremony was repeated seven times throughout this day. And water was poured out over the altar as the, the, the Levitical priesthood would, would sing hymns and stuff. Knowing that, that it's a water ceremony, helps us understand Jesus' next words when he says, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. Feels random when you don't know the context, right? But now that we know that it's a water ceremony, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. I don't know if you saw this, but the gospel is intertwined in three little words there that Jesus says. Thirsty, come, drink. Thirsty, come, and drink. Three words summarizing the gospel so well, recognizing that the needy, the thirsty, can lead us to come to the source that we can drink. So neat. So neat. Verse 40. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, surely this man is the prophet that we've been expecting. Others said, no, 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 he's the Messiah. Still others said, but he can't be. Pay attention to this. this they're, they're so confused. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? For the scripture clearly states that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David. Yes, right, correct. In Bethlehem, yes. The village where King David was born, correct. But did you catch it? Because earlier they're like, we don't know where the Messiah is going to come from. He's just going to appear. Now they're like, well, the scriptures clearly state, right? He'll be from Bethlehem. They are a mess, they are confused, they are dysfunctional, they are lost. And they have a new issue. Did you catch it? They say, will the Messiah come from Galilee? No, come from Bethlehem. They think Jesus is from Galilee. At this point, not only the ignorant, they're lazy. Not doing their due diligence. So the, the, the cool thing about the Jewish people is they keep records of everything, especially family lineages. And the reason they did that is they were looking for a Messiah. If somebody claimed to be the Messiah, the first thing that they should do is go, you're claiming to be the Messiah, huh? Let's go check your family records. Let's make for one sure that you're coming from the right family. And let's also make sure that you're born in Bethlehem. But they're not doing that. They're just... There was a public record. Anybody could access it. All they had to do was go and check. They're not even bothering to do that. So what this tells me is they're just showing their lack of interest in who the Messiah actually is. Here's, here's what I think. 
They were waiting on a Messiah to be a warrior, to be a fighter, and Jesus isn't exactly looking that part, right? So they're like, eh, whatever. Got me thinking, how often do we miss out on what God is trying to say to us, what God is trying to do with us, the puzzle pieces that God is trying to move with us or within us, and we don't recognize it because... Uh, because we're simply just too lazy to seek God and find out? The more familiar we become with his presence, the more familiar we'll become with his heart. I love, 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 love what A.W. Tozer said about these words. Every man is as close to God as he wants to be. They just didn't do the due diligence. They They just... you're just telling me that you just don't, at the end of the day, you really just don't care. I think that's, that's what you're telling me. So the people missed out entirely on the heart of God, missed out entirely on his ways, missed out entirely on his identity because they just refused to go look. They refused to seek after him. It's like this. Imagine this. You leave here, you leave the church, and you go grab a lottery ticket. Contradiction. Maybe not. Okay. I don't, I don't gamble. I love Jesus. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <clears throat> you leave here and you go buy a, a lottery ticket, right? And it's one of those where you have to, like, guess the winning numbers. And I remember this doing as a kid because my aunt always played the lottery, and we'd sit down at, like, 7 o'clock every, every, every night, and then the numbers would pop up, and she's, like, looking back. Anyway, so far. So you, you, you pick your winning numbers, and you, you go home that night, and you, you turn on the news pretty casually, like, oh, yeah, 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 I played the lottery today, whatever. And... They're starting to announce the numbers. They're popping up on your screen, and you're looking going, I think that's what I picked. Those numbers look really, really familiar. And then you start doing this number here, like, what did I do with the ticket? Right, row. You've lost the ticket. You have misplaced the ticket. But then there's a part of you that's like, you know what? I never win anything. Right? No. this is, And you just don't look for the ticket. Turns out, the truth of the matter is, you held the winning ticket. You guessed the right numbers, but you were too lazy to go and find the ticket. It's no different. The riches were there. You just didn't go get it. Verse 43. So the crowd was divided about him. Some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. Again, confused for so many reasons. 45. Actually, this story ends with Jewish leaders frustrated and the world divided over, over who Jesus actually is. Think about this. They're divided over who Jesus is. Anyone want to take a stab, I guess, at another people group who's divided over who Jesus actually is? Starts with a, uh, ends with America. And it's about to get Worse. 45. When the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and the Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? Uh, We've never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. (laughs) Listen to the arrogance. Have Have you been led astray to the Pharisees, mocked? Is there a single one of us rulers 
or Pharisee who believes him? This foolish crowd follows him, but they are ignorant of the law. God's curse is on them. So the Pharisees begin to make fun of the temple guards, accusing them of being deceived by a nobody from Galilee. Two things. He ain't a nobody, and he's not from Galilee. And the Pharisees are so arrogant and self-righteous, and they're so prideful. Who could ever, you know, deceive them because they're so wise and knowledgeable? And they call the crowd foolish, saying, they're ignorant of the law. They don't know. Yes, they don't know what Scripture says. We saw that. But do you hear the pride? It's got me thinking. How often do we miss out on what God is trying to say to us? What God is trying to do with us? Puzzle pieces that God is trying to move with us or within us. And we fight it or we don't recognize it that it's God because we think we know better. I'm so tired of the, the, the gospel that I hear that refers to us as like kings and queens. My Bible says we might not even be on the chess table. You know what I'm saying? Like, like who are we to think that we know better, that, that we know anything, right? Let me word it this way. The more familiar we become with dying to self, the more familiar we'll become with life in him. I've been saying in our high school Bible study over and over and over again, you, rem- you remove humility from a Christian and you don't have a Christian anymore. I love what A.W. Tozer said about this. He said, the reason why many are still troubled, still seeking, still making forward are still making little forward progress is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give God orders and interfering with God's work within us because we think we know better. You heard it out of the Pharisees. Which one of us actually believes in him? Look at us. You might remember about 10, 11, 12 years ago, there was a bank robbery in some small town in Nebraska. Of course, I think every town in Nebraska is small, but that's just my opinion. Um, <clears throat> bank robbery in, in Nebraska, and about $6,000 was stolen, and the bank employees are trying to give a description of, of the thief. And it turns out that the officers are like, actually, don't worry about it. We got it because they pull out their phones and she has posted the whole thing on YouTube. And she has titled it Chick Bank Robber. You might have gotten away with it, but your pride and your arrogance was your downfall. Pride, arrogance, all right? Verse 50. It says, the Nicodemus, the leader who had met with Jesus earlier, he spoke up. Is it legal to convict a man before he is given a hearing, he asked? Now, if you'll remember Nicodemus, he's from John chapter 3, some of the most famous words in Scripture, right? John three sixteen Comes in the middle of the night because Nicodemus goes to find Jesus in the middle of the night because he doesn't want everybody else to know that he's meeting with him and he's asking him all these questions. And I just want so bad to believe that 
Nicodemus came to faith and he came to salvation in Jesus, but we actually never read that in black and white. But here, what we do read is he's passively defending Jesus. And it ends like this. Sad part of scripture, right? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search the scriptures yourself, Nicodemus. No prophet ever comes from Galilee. And I would just say again, check the records. It's not from Galilee. All right, so that's the section of scripture. Now we start, what, what, what we gotta do is we gotta start asking ourselves basically a set of questions. What does this mean for us? Why does it matter, right? Well, here's the reality. We live in a world where the church should be prepared for differing opinions on who Jesus is, right? It's all over the place. We're right in the thick of it, okay? Culture, society, media, it's all over the map on who Jesus actually is. So we need to be prepared to defend him, right? Defend his name in a loving fashion, of course. Don't go like burning government buildings down and stuff. So with that said, what we actually got to do is I think that we got to start with self. Before we can get to a place where we can defend him, we got to start looking at self. Because this was everybody in this, everybody not named Jesus that we just read, that was their problem. They had a self problem, right? So let's ask ourselves a set of questions based off what we just read. First question, am I lost in ignorance? Do I know what his word says? Or am I ignorant to the fact on who he actually is? The, the, I don't know that answer. Only you know that answer, but I know the cure if it's, if it's not a good answer. The answer is discipleship. Get somebody in your life to steer you in the right path. Who knows what the text says, who's, who's growing and, and learning, who can, who can guide you and lead you, right? Second question. Am I misled by hatred? And we can really substitute hatred for any emotion we want, right? Am I misled by jealousy? Am I misled by apathy? Am I misled by pain, hurt? Put whatever you want to right there. Am I misled by my feelings? So much so that I can't see what God is doing? See, I believe that the church has a pretty negative perception upon itself, especially in this country, because for the most part, we've done a pretty pathetic job of loving our neighbor. We haven't really done that well. So I'll just ask you this, like, are you standing out by the way you treat people? Or are you being led by whatever emotion? Am I suffering from apathy? Am I just too lazy to go after God? Because this is more important, my job is more important, kids are more important, or, 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 or whatever you want to put there. Listen, I get it. Following Jesus is hard. It's hard. Any, any pastor, preacher, Christian who says it's easy, I'm going to need them to write a book. Because he asks me to do stuff outside of my comfort zone. He asks me to do things I don't like to do. He asks me to go people, talk to people and, and love on people that make me, like, you get what I'm saying? Like, it's hard to, to, to die to myself. Well, God, I've got these dreams, ambitions, and wants, and you're telling me to abandon all that for your dreams, ambitions, and wants? It's hard. I am very self-driven. I'm not talking to you as, as, as like, you know, general. I'm me. 
I'm very, I'm a very selfish person. I like what I want. And you want me to give all that up for a kingdom that I can't actually see? It's hard. But I would say to the church, those who call themselves followers of Jesus, are what kind of example are we setting to a lost and dying world? Let's go get Jesus. Let's, let's make, him, make him the daily goal. Last thing, am I calloused by pride? Am I calloused by pride? The Bible says that God opposes the proud. Again, there is no Christian without humility. It just doesn't, that oil and water, it just doesn't go together. Let's be uh, humble people. So now our application, after these set of questions, our application is really twofold. It's pretty simple. It's not rocket science. First thing, we need to know God. Like know Him on a, on a deep and, and a personal level. His word, know His presence. Have the ability to recognize His voice. Dan, what? Recognize His voice like audible? Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep know my voice. Well, how, do, how am I going to be able to recognize this? Well, when you think something in your head might be God, hold it up to this. And if it doesn't line up, it ain't God. If it does line up, strong chance it's Him. Right? And we need to know God not for, for your sake, like for your day-to-day life, for your eternity. And again, an experiential knowledge for your sake, right? Here's the second thing. The world that you live in, the world that you live, play, work in, that world needs to know the God that you know. Not me as a pastor coming into your world and trying to tell them. You. Scripture says that you are Christ's ambassador, not your local church pastor, not, you know, your Bible study. You. You. Think about this, church. Our nation is, our nation, our community, they're they're dying because of either ignorance, apathy, feelings, circumstances, pride. And when he comes back, when Jesus comes back, it will not be so that he can defend his name. He's not going to do that. It's not going to be so he can set right on the people's opinion about who, he's not doing that. That's on us. So sharing the truth about his identity, who he is, is a lot easier when we know his word and we are just familiar with his presence. I hope, here's my prayer. I hope that I rubbed you the wrong way. I hope that I stepped on your toes. I hope that I made you uncomfortable. And I hope that you asked yourself those set of questions and it made you uncomfortable. That's the goal. Because the world needs uncomfortable Christians. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time, God, and the opportunity to get together. God, I think about the crowds and the Pharisees who are just lost. Lost in their ignorance, lost in their hatred, lost in their apathy, lost in their pride. 
May we be a people who are lost in the presence of Jesus. Representing your name, God, so well. Doing it with love and compassion. Leading people to your kingdom uh, in, in conversations with compassion. Jesus didn't go about the earth and yelling at people with a megaphone and turn or burn. It's not what he did. He led people to the kingdom by having conversations with him and loving them inside of those conversations. May we ask ourselves really hard questions. Am I being misled, God? Am I ignorant? Am I, am I blinded by feelings? Am I calloused by pride? Let's self-evaluate today, God. Would you speak so deep into the darkest part of our hearts? It's in Jesus' name I pray.